The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Technica podcast feed. The Ego and Its Own by Max Stirner Edited by David Leopold Narrated by Dr. Brian Sovereign Brought to you by Sovereign Tech First University. Max Stirner's The Ego and Its Own has been called the most revolutionary book ever written. First published in 1844, Stirner's distinctive and powerful polemics sounded the death knell of left Hegelianism with its attack on Ludwig Feuerbach, Bruno Bauer, Moses Hess, and others. It contains an enduring and strikingly written critique of both liberalism and socialism from the perspective of an extreme and eccentric individualism. Karl Marx was only one of many contemporaries provoked into a lengthy rebuttal of Stirner's argument. More recently, Stirner has been variously portrayed as a nihilistic anarchist, a precursor of Nietzsche, a forerunner of existentialism, and as manifestly insane. This edition of Stirner's work comprises a revised version of Stephen Byington's much-praised translation, together with an introduction and notes on the historical background to Stirner's text. Narrator's Note David Leopold provides a wealth of footnotes in his 1995 edition of The Ego and Its Own. These footnotes, along with Max Stirner's own, while extensive, will not be made available in this audiobook recording. Please see the original edition from Cambridge University Press of The Ego and Its Own, edited by David Leopold, copyright 1995, for those footnotes. Cambridge Texts in the History of Political Thought Max Stirner, The Ego and Its Own, edited by David Leopold. Introduction by David Leopold. 1. The Ego and Its Own has been called the most revolutionary book ever written, and yet when the Lipsag Christerection seized part of the first edition, the Saxon minister for the interior ordered the release of the confiscated copies on the grounds that the book was too absurd to constitute a danger to social or political order. Of all possible responses to Max Stirner's work, indifference is perhaps the most unlikely. But Stirner's book is not only striking and provocative, it has also played an important, if neglected, role in the history of political thought. Stirner's polemic was, most obviously, an impulse to, and an indication of, the decline of the Hegelian left as a coherent intellectual movement. But it was also central to the formation of Marxism, forcing Karl Marx to break with the left Hegelian modes of thought. He discusses the book in unparalleled detail over some 400 pages of the German ideology. Since then, the ego in its own has appeared ambiguous enough to provide subsequent generations with their own Stirner. For example, at the turn of the century, the ego in its own was taken up not least because of its adumbration of libertarian themes and its discussion of property in the state, as a founding text of individualist anarchism, especially in America, where it was an important influence on Benjamin R. Tucker and the journal Liberty. Stirner has been counted, moreover, as an important precursor of Friedrich Nietzsche, although, despite the claims of some commentators, he cannot be definitively shown to have directly influenced Nietzsche. Stirner's work anticipates, both stylistically and substantively, certain Nietzschean motifs in modern political thought. 
Then in the 1960s, Stirner was rediscovered again, this time as a thinker with conceptual affinities, for example, in his anti-essentialist conception of the self as a creative nothing, with existentialist thought. This plurality of interpretations should scarcely disappoint Stirner himself, since, rejecting any notion of external constraints on our understanding, his claim about the Bible would seem to apply equally to his own work. Quote, In fact, the child who tears it to pieces or plays with it, the Inca Atahuapa who lays his ear to it and throws it away contemptuously when it remains dumb, judges just as correctly about the Bible as the priest who praises in it the word of God, or the critic who calls it a job of men's hands. For how we toss things about is the affair of our choice, our free will. We use them according to our heart's pleasure, or more clearly, we use them just as we can. End quote. Apart from this authorship of this remarkable book, Stirner's life was largely unexceptional. Born as Johann Caspar Schmidt on 25 October 1806 in Beirut to conventional lower middle-class parents of Lutheran persuasion, Stirner was a childhood nickname, referring to his large forehead, exaggerated by the way in which he parted his hair, that he subsequently adopted as a literary pseudonym and then as his preferred name. He passed through university without distinction, eventually becoming a teacher at a respectable private girls' school in Berlin. His spare time, in contrast, was spent in the more avant-garde of Berlin's intellectual haunts, mixing in particular with The Free, the increasingly bohemian group of teachers, students, officers, and journalists organized largely under the tutelage of the left Hegelian Bruno Bauer. During this period, Stirner often alluded to the existence of a magnum opus, on occasion even pointing to the desk which supposedly concealed the work, to the general skepticism and straightforward disbelief of his associates. When that work did appear, although dated 1845, The Ego in Its Own was published towards the end of October 1844, Stirner quickly discovered that widespread critical reaction does not necessarily translate into financial reward, and he fell back on hack journalism and competent translation of the economic writings of Adam Smith with his popularizer Jean-Baptiste Say into German to support himself. From this point onwards, Stirner increasingly adopted a solitary and rather pathetic existence. His second wife left him. His first wife had died giving birth to a stillborn child, although not before he had frittered away the bulk of her inheritance, and he mainly expended his energies on continually moving to evade creditors, although not quickly enough to escape two brief periods in a debtor's prison. Finally, after being stung in the neck by a winged insect, Stirner contracted a severe fever, and after a brief remission, died on 25 June 1856, largely unnoticed by the outside world. 2. The ego in its own is not always an easy work to engage with. Stirner's unyielding prose has its admirers. Arnold Rouge, a contemporary left Hegelian, for example, proclaimed it the first readable book in philosophy that Germany has produced. Yet almost every feature of his writing seems calculated to unnerve. The use of aphorism and metaphor, the neologisms, the mixture of self-consciously obscure terminology with colloquial language, the excessive italicization and hyperbole, all confound the received framework in which philosophical argument is conducted. Perhaps most striking is Stirner's repeated juxtaposition of words with formal similarities or related meanings not simply for humorous effect, but as a way of presenting his views. This method of proceeding by assertion rather than by argument exploits etymological connections, for example, between words with connotations of individuality and words referring to ownership, as in the play between Eigentum and Eigenheit. 
property and ownness, or belonging distinctively to oneself, in order to insist on, rather than demonstrate, a claim. Here, the Hegelian assertion that property is expressive of selfhood. The point, however, is not simply that Stirner has a highly idiosyncratic and somewhat relentless style, but that there is a connection between the form of Stirner's writing and his conception of language and rationality as human creations that have come to bind and restrict their creators. This dominance of language and reason is sustained, for Stirner, by conception of truth as constituting a privileged domain lying beyond the individual. As long as you believe in this truth, he insists, you are a servant. To subvert this tyranny, truths must be deprived of their sorry existence as independent subjects and subordinated to the individual. I, he insists, am the criterion of truth. It is this radical assertion of the relativity of rationality, truth, and language that grounds Stirner's bizarre prose. The only restriction on the forms of expression and mode of argumentation acceptable to him is that they serve our individual ends, and it seems that received meanings and traditional standards of argumentation do not always satisfy that criterion. Despite its appearance as an inchoate melange of aphorisms and wordplays, the ego in its own has a decipherable, if complex, architecture structured around Stirner's tripartite division of human experience into the categories of realism, idealism, and egoism, embodied in his accounts of individual development, of human history, and in his racial rereading of that history. This division is introduced in Stirner's account of a human life, which treats individual development as a difficult process of self-discovery divided into three chronological stages of childhood, youth, and adulthood. Children are realistic, their development frustrated by the external forces of their world, parental disapproval, for example. This initial and inadequate stage is overthrown when, with the self-discovery of mind, children discover in their own courage and shrewdness a means to outwit those powers. However, this liberation is simultaneously a new enslavement, since the youth is released into a still more exhausting battle with conscience and reason which constitutes the period of idealism. This dialectic of progression and curse is broken only with the transition to adulthood, which takes place with a second self-discovery of the corporeal self, in which individuals discover their own embodiment, their existence as individuals with material interests of their own. In this adulthood of egoism, individuals deal with everything as they wish, setting their personal satisfaction above all else. Stirner sees this dialectic, which organizes the experience of individual development, as an analog of a process being played out on a grander scale throughout history. The tripartite division of history into the ancient or pre-Christian, the modern or Christian, and the future corresponds to the epochs of realism, idealism, and egoism, and structures the remainder of the book. The first part of the ego in its own is concerned with an account of human history up to the present, although its primary focus is on the nature of the modern epoch of idealism. The ancient world is discussed only insofar as it contributes to the genesis of modernity. Stirner begins with an analogy between the historical development of humankind and the stages of a human life, although the received nomenclature for pre-Christian societies is the ancients. He suggests that they ought properly to be called children. The ancient world stands in the same relation to the Christian world as the child stands to youth. They are opposites, the former concerned with material and natural rather than intellectual and spiritual relations, and Stirner's concern is to trace how that opposite gave birth to its other. 
The ancients, of course, had thoughts, but they were always thoughts of things, an attitude which, in Stirner's reproduction of a familiar Hegelian conceit, he describes as having been carried down to the present day by the Jews, the precocious children of antiquity. The ancient world, in short, is an epoch of realism, characterized by a deference to natural relations, overthrown only with the self-discovery of mind that Stirner portrays as the cumulative result of the intellectual history of 5th century Athens. His highly abbreviated account runs from the sophist to the radical nominalism of Timon and Pyro. It was the latter's break with the natural world, in which all social bonds are dissolved and dismissed as burdens which diminish spiritual freedom, which constituted a final successful revolt against the natural and this worldly, and formed the ancients' bequests to the moderns. Stirner's account of the historical development of modernity is essentially reduced to a single event, the Reformation which punctuates the succession of Catholic to Protestant hegemony. His primary concern is to show that, from the perspective of the individual, this fracture constituted an extension and intensification of, rather than a break with, the domination by spirit. First, whereas the Middle Ages had maintained the distinction between the spiritual and the sensuous, the Reformation extended the religious principle to the sensuous, allowing its priests to marry, for example, thereby destroying the independence of the latter. Second, the Reformation bound the religious principle more effectively to the individual by virtue of the more inward faith of Protestantism, which established a constant tearing apart of man into natural impulses and sacred duties. Stirner captures the resulting internal conflict in the striking image of the modern self as a country divided between the populace on the one hand and the secret police, the spies and eavesdroppers of conscience, on the other. Images do as much work as arguments in Stirner's text, and his images of modernity are always stark and unsettling. At one point, he describes the activity of the moderns as the bustle of vermin, moving about on a stony and indomitable other, like parasitic animals on a body from whose juices they draw nourishment, yet without consuming it. But the dominant images of the modern, playing not least on the many connotations of Geist, are of the spectral and the insane. The modern world is peopled by ghosts, spirits, phantasms, demons, and bogies of every kind. But the spectral does not merely walk abroad. The individual in the modern world, in imagining both the world and her corporeal self as the mere semblance, is, for Stirner, literally possessed. This image of modernity as an asylum is, he insists, not intended figuratively. Almost all of humankind are fools in a madhouse their illusion of sanity and freedom only the result of that asylum's extent. Most of Stirner's illustrations of progressive Protestant hegemony are taken from the realm of ideas and combined to make up a short, schematic, and typically idiosyncratic history of modern philosophy. Descartes is the Luther of philosophy, inaugurating the break with a common consciousness which dealt with things whether rational or not. Descartes' conception of the self as constituted by thought alone, and his rejection of anything that mind does not legitimate, establishes the Christian principle on which modern philosophy is founded, namely that only the rational is, only mind is. This struggle to seek out and demonstrate the spiritual in the mundane, initiated by the Cartesian ego, culminates in the rational theodicy of Hegel, in which an ordered hierarchy of concepts governs the world. 
The move beyond the sensuous to spirit, which makes German thought paradigmatically philosophical and excludes the English clearheads like Hume from the canon, is perfectly captured for Stirner in Camiso's account of the Wundersame Geschichte of Peter Schlemiel, the archetype of the Christian rejection of the physical, a man so modern he would not even cast a shadow. Individual and historical development are the two primary forms of the Sternerian dialectic, but in order to clarify its form, he inserts episodically a racial and racist analog of the historical account. Human history in this new narrative, whose shaping properly belongs altogether to the Caucasian race, is divided into three Caucasian ages. The first, in which the Caucasian race works off its innate negroidity, is vaguely located as including the era of Egyptian and North African importance in general, and the campaigns of Sesostris III in particular, but its importance is clearly symbolic. Negroidity is the racial parallel of antiquity and childhood, representing a time of dependence on things, on cocks eating, birds flight, on sneezing, on thunder and lightning, on the rustling of sacred trees, and so forth. The second epoch, in which the Caucasian race escapes its Mongoloidity, Chineseness, includes the invasions of the Huns and Mongols up to the Russians, and parallels the modern age and youth in representing the time of dependence on thoughts. Stirner's concern with the continuity of this Christian epoch is emphasized by his choice of Mongolism as the parallel of the modern, Chineseness being a standard and pejorative Hegelian shorthand for lack of qualitative change. Reserved for the future is the really Caucasian era in which Having thrown off the Negroid and Mongol inheritance, the egoistic self can escape its dependence on both natural forces and ideas. Stirner's dialectic is obviously repetitive. Karl Marx, exasperated by this reiteration, wrote Rapitio est meter studiorum against his notes on Stirner's conception of history, but also both highly schematic and derivative. First, empirical detail, insofar as it appears at all, functions solely as the bearer of conceptual development. The ancients, for example, like the child and negroidity, are not serious objects of investigation, but simply the disguises of realism. In The German Ideology, Marx calls the book a Geistergeschichte, a history of ghosts, within which empirical details are utilized only to provide convenient bodies for the spirits of realism, idealism, and egoism in turn. The point is not simply that this is not good history, but also that it begins to look suspiciously like the very Christian vice that Stirner denounces elsewhere at length, the neglect of the concrete and the particular in favor of abstract conceptual categories. Second, much of the content and structure of Stirner's history is derived from Hegel or his followers. There are scarcely digested borrowings from Hegel's own work throughout. To take only one example, apart from schematizing what are prefatory and passing remarks in Hegel into all that needs saying, Stirner's portrayal of the epoch of negroidity does little more than reproduce the description of Africa in Hegel's Lectures on the Philosophy of World History, Introduction, as the land of the childhood, where humankind has not progressed beyond a merely sensuous existence. However, in its overall construction or structure, Stirner's dialectic is derivative of Hegelianism more generally. In particular, in his two most obvious innovations in regard to Hegel's own historical schema, first, in following a tripartite rather than quadripartite division of history, and second, in treating the future as the third synthesizing dimension in that configuration, Stirner's predecessors include both 
August Chuskowski in his Opuscule Die Proglamina zur Historiosophie, 1838, and Moses Hess in Die Europäische Triarche, 1841. Both Tchaikovsky and Hess, themselves consciously following Herder, also draw analogies with individual development, the three stages of history representing the childhood, youth, and maturity of humankind. 3. Throughout the first part of The Ego and Its Own, Stirner constructs a lengthy and unorthodox genealogy of the modern, not only in the mundane sense of tracing a linear progression through the modes of experience, but also in the Foucauldian sense of trying to unsettle by demonstrating that modernity fails to escape from the very thing that it claims to have outgrown, namely religious modes of thought. This is clearest in Stirner's treatment of Ludwig Feuerbach, the leading figure of the Hegelian left. The very structure of the book would have revealed Feuerbach as the primary target of Stirner's polemic to contemporary readers. The two parts of Stirner's book, headed Man and I, are an implicit structural parody of the sections God, and man, of Feuerbach's best-known work, The Essence of Christianity, year 1841. Stirner rejects the contemporary consensus that Feuerbach had completed the critique of religion, and provocatively insists that the Feuerbachian problematic reproduces the central features of Christianity. For Feuerbach, the central error of religion was that it separated human attributes from actual individuals by transferring the predicates of the species into another world, as if they constituted a self-sustaining being. But for Stirner, the errors of religion are not overcome with a rejection of God as transcendent subject. Rather, religion is defined formally as the subordination of the individual to spirit in any of its guises. Because Feuerbach's transformative criticism leaves the divine predicates untouched, he is charged with allowing the sacred to remain, if not as God, then as man with a capital M. Feuerbach had not revealed human nature as it was, but rather deified a purely prescriptive account of what being human involved, thus leaving the real kernel of religion, the positioning of an essence over me, intact. Indeed, Feuerbach's achievement was a change of masters, which actually established a more complete tyranny than before, tying the individual even more securely to a divine ruler. First, by rejecting the transcendence of religion in favor of an imminent divinity, making a god of our supposed nature. Second, in thus discovering a god who could possess all, believers and unbelievers alike. Feuerbach's failure to escape from the religious is no isolated incident for Stirner, but is rather paradigmatic of modernity. The free, who do not constitute a distinct epoch in their own right, but are included as the most modern of the moderns, are found guilty of the same offense. Although Stirner's characterization of the free owes much to the eponymous Berlin Hegelians with whom he had earlier associated, they are clearly intended to embody more widespread intellectual temptations, which, subdivided into political, social, and humane liberalisms, he discusses in turn. Although they disagree about the exact nature of our humanity, identifying the species respectively with citizenship, labor, and critical activity, all the liberals reproduce the Fairbachian problematic, whereby first, individuals are separated from the human essence, and second, that essence is set above those individuals as something to be striven for. For Stirner, 
this modern propaganda for the species, which culminates in the demand that the mundane and private individual must work to become truly human, he refers as an example to an article by an obscure contemporary, the young Karl Marx, simply reproduces the religious division of individuals into an essential and unessential self. For the individual, the experience of alienation remains the same. Whether we strive to become more like God or more like the true man, Stirner insists that I can never take comfort in myself as long as I think that I have still to find my true self. In contrast, Stirner will hear nothing of this cutting in two and insists that alienation can only be overcome by rejecting the human essence of the liberals as the enemy of selfhood rather than its true content and aspiration. As the striking epigraph to the second part has it, man, as well as God, must die. In its place, Stirner seeks to rehabilitate the prosaic and mortal self, the unman, for whom the notion of calling is alien, the man who does not correspond to the concept man. For Stirner, because there are no universal or prescriptive elements in human nature, the concept cannot ground any claim about how we ought to live. Quote, I am a man just as the earth is a star. As ridiculous as it would be to set the earth the task of being a thorough star, so ridiculous it is to burden me with the call to be a thorough man. End quote. Rather, we need to learn, as Stirner's Nietzschean injunction has it, to give up our foolish mania to be something else and become what we are. 4. Whereas the negative project of the first part of the ego in its own was to demonstrate that modernity had striven unsuccessfully to overcome religious modes of thought, the positive project of the second part is to characterize the future epoch of egoism. Egoism, for Stirner, is not self-interested action simpliciter, but is rather related to another good which he values above all else, characterized somewhat opaquely as the ownness of individuals. The centrality and importance of ownness for Stirner can hardly be exaggerated. Not least it was the ownness of individuals that was suppressed in the ancient and modern worlds, and ownness which is fully realized in the epoch of egoism. Ownness is best understood as a variety of self-mastery, a form of substantive individual autonomy, which insists that any actions or desires which involve waiving or suspending individual judgment violate the self-mastery and independence of the person concerned. I am my own, he writes, only when I am master of myself instead of being mastered by anything else. Stirner accepts that for some it may well be the case that I can make very little out of myself, but insists that this very little is everything. That any existence I create for myself is better than what I allow to be made out of myself by the might of others. Occasionally, ownness is described in terms of a prescription of law to oneself. Autonomous individuals, he claims, bear their law in themselves and live according to it. But some care is needed here, since law is a declaration of will that is supposed to be binding on the individual, and yet Stirner insists that the individual cannot legitimately bind herself. Even a law that we prescribe for ourselves does not bind, since in the next moment I can refuse obedience. Importantly, Stirner is here rejecting the classic modern method, perhaps most familiar from the social contract tradition for reconciling autonomy and obligation by claiming that even self-assumed obligations are incompatible with autonomy. A self-assumed obligation is still a duty, and ownness can be realized 
only by recognizing no duty, not binding myself, nor letting myself be bound. In places, Stirner simply identifies the concept of egoism with autonomy, as in his provocative description of God as an egoist on the grounds that he serves no higher person, or in repeated references to heteronomy, rather than altruism, as the antonym of egoism. However, it might be clearer to talk here of egoism being subordinated to ownness, of an egoism which is literally self-sacrificing. That is perhaps most marked in those passages where Stirner discusses the case of individuals who venture everything for a single end or passion. Take the example of the avaricious man who sacrifices everything else in order to gather treasures. His actions are clearly self-interested, he acts only to enrich himself, but it is an egoism that Stirner rejects as a one-sided, unopened, narrow egoism. Because with the subordination of everything to a single end, that end begins to inspire, enthuse, fanaticize us. It becomes our master. In short, this one-sided, self-sacrificing egoism is rejected because it violates our ownness. The avaricious man, Stirner suggests, rather than being self-determining, is dragged along by his appetites. Sternarian self-mastery thus has both external and internal dimensions, demanding not only that we avoid subordinating ourselves to others, but also that we avoid submitting to our own appetites or ends. Stirner accepts the claim that if any idea or desire plants itself firmly in me and becomes indissoluble, then I have become its prisoner and servant a possessed man. This attack on the Christian fixedity of ideas does not entail that the egoist can no longer allow herself to have ideas, but rather that she must never allow an idea to make her a tool of its realization. The egoist must exercise power, not only over the exactions and violences of the world, but also exercise this power over my nature and avoid becoming the slave of my appetites. Stirner thus encourages the individual to cultivate and extend an ideal of emotional detachment towards both her passions and her ideas. 5. Morality is defined for Stirner by its positing of an obligation or duty on the individual to behave in certain ways, and by its fixity. Morality is a rigid, unbending master. Like religion, Morality demands that the individual sacrifice her autonomy to an alien end, that she give up her own will for an alien one which is set up as a rule and law. And it is this opposition between individual autonomy and moral obligation that grounds Stirner's rejection of the latter. However, although egoism is opposed to rather than a form of morality, it does not follow that the egoist is immoral. Stirner rejects the idea of an exclusive opposition between morality and immorality as antediluvian, or that Stirner is inconsistent in stressing the evaluative superiority of egoism over other modes of experience and action. Stirner's rejection of morality is grounded not, as is often suggested, in a rejection of values as such, but in the affirmation of what might be called non-moral goods. That is, he allows a realm of actions and desires which, although not moral because they involve no obligations to others, are still to be assessed positively. Stirner's conception of morality is in this sense a narrow one, and his rejection of its claims is in no way coextensive with a rejection of the validity of all evaluative judgment. 
consider his discussion of Nero, where he asserts that both the egoist and the moralist would agree that the emperor's behavior is to be rejected, but on very different evaluative grounds. The egoist despises Nero not because the emperor was immoral, that is, violated his duties to others, but rather because, like the moral man, he was possessed. Because, that is, Nero's obsessive predilections violated his self-mastery. Similarly, there is no inconsistency in Stirner's explicitly evaluative vocabulary when he talks positively of the egoist having the courage of a lie, or in a negative example, of the abdication of an individual's own judgment to her family as a weakness. Stirner is clearly committed to the non-nihilistic view that a certain kind of character and mode of behavior, namely autonomous individuals and actions, are to be valued above all others. Many secondary authorities have portrayed Stirner as a psychological egoist, that is, as holding the descriptive claim that all intentional actions are motivated by a concern for the agent's greatest interest. However, the textual evidence for this characterization of Stirner is sparse, typically consisting of those passages where he draws a contrast between the egoist proper, who consciously rejects all heteronomy, and the involuntary egoist, who serves a higher being, God or humanity, but does so only because this gratifies her own desire. It should be said that if any of these passages is supposed to constitute an argument for psychological egoism, then it is not obviously successful. Even if we always, intentionally, do what we want to do, this might only show that our motivations are our motivations, rather than anyone else's, and not that these motivations are of self-interest. But, in context, these passages are inadequate as evidence of any commitment to psychological egoism on Stirner's part. First, it is not clear that the contrast between proper and involuntary egoism is exhaustive, that is, includes all actions across all times, which is what psychological egoism requires. The involuntary egoist is rather portrayed as the contemporary product of an age which hangs uncomfortably between two domains, where individuals are unable to defend morality vigorously and yet are not reckless enough to live egoistically either. The first part of the book might confirm this reading since it's structured around the opposition between egoistic and other modes of experience. Indeed, it suggests that non-egoistic action is historically predominant. Second, it seems that for Stirner, this involuntary egoism is in fact not egoism, but its opposite, unconscious egoism. He insists is not egoism, but thraldom, service, self-renunciation. Finally, in an important discussion of the case of a woman who sacrifices her love for another in order to respect the wishes of her family, Stirner appears explicitly to consider psychological egoism as an explanation. One might say, he concedes, that here too selfishness prevailed, since the discussion came from the feeling that the pliable girl felt herself more satisfied by the unity of her family than by the fulfillment of her wish. Only to reject the suggestion, insisting that if the pliable girl were conscious of having left her self-will unsatisfied and humbly subjected herself to a higher power. Then her actions are ruled by piety as opposed to egoism. 6. Stirner's images of the state are dramatic and varied. The state is both beast and machine, the rapacious king of the animal world, simultaneously lion and eagle, but also a giant mechanism a complex system of cogs moving the clockwork of individual minds, 
no longer capable of following their own impulse. The state is also both God and the devil. Grounded in the self-renunciation of the individual, the state, he insists, in a mocking echo of Hegel, is sacred. The Lord of my spirit, who demands faith and prescribes to me articles of faith, the creed of legality. But the state is also Satan, behaving in practice as the devil behaves in theory, demanding that we pledge our very souls, our autonomy, to it. What this complex of images shares is the connotation of an antipathy between state and individual. The state always involves the limiting, taming, subordination, and even slavery of the individual. As Stirner repeatedly insists, we too, the state and I, are enemies, between which there are only two alternatives, it or I. This relationship of absolute hostility between the state and individual is based on the incompatibility between individual autonomy and obligations to obey the law. Own will and the state, he writes, are powers in deadly hostility, between which no perpetual peace is possible. Since individual autonomy is incompatible with, and more important than, a general duty to obey the law, Stirner rejects absolutely the legitimacy of political obligation. This rejection stands irrespective of the foundation of that obligation and whatever the form of the state. I, writes Stirner, am free in no state. He discusses, for example, the participatory republic proposed by the left Hegelian Edgar Bauer, in which there is no government established apart from and above the citizen body, and insists that even here there is only a change of masters, and not the end of the relationship between ruler and ruled. There might be no government as distinct from the people, but there is still clearly a government or people standing over the individual, expressing a will other than our own, which we are expected to obey. Every state, he insists, is a despotism, be the despot one or many. Even in the hypothetical case of a unanimous agreement of a citizen body, Stirner denies that the autonomous individual would be bound by the result. To be bound today by my will of yesterday would be to turn my creature, that is, a particular expression of will, into my commander. It would be to freeze my will, and Stirner denies that because I was a fool yesterday, I must remain such. Stirner sees the state as a human product, albeit one that dominates its own creators. What generates and sustains the state, on his account, is the willingness of individuals to subordinate their own will to the will of their own creation expressed in law. Stirner's characterization of this relation between individual and state alludes, in its choice of vocabulary, to Hegel's dialectic of Herrschaft and Nesschaft in the Phenomenology of Spirit. Quote, he who, to hold his own, must count on the absence of will in others is a thing made by these others, as the master is a thing made by the servant. If submissiveness ceased, it would be all over with lordship. End quote. But this promotion of Hegel's moment of recognition and dominion into a complete account of the sources of state power results in what might be called an idealist sociology. The state exists only because of the disrespect that I have for myself, and with the vanishing of this undervaluation, the state itself will be extinguished. This idealist account of the sources of state power, in which it is the abdication of selfhood which maintains the integrity of the state, grounds Stirner's very different responses to the question of civil disobedience and crime. 
Stirner's brief and contrasting accounts of Socrates and Alcibiades can be read as an implicit indictment of the respect for law embodied in the practice of civil disobedience. Socrates' refusal to escape punishment, or even earlier to request banishment, was clearly grounded in a commitment not to weaken the community by undermining the system of law and is roundly condemned by Stirner. Socrates was a fool to concede to the Athenians the right to condemn him, his failure to escape was a weakness, a product of his delusion that he was a member of a community rather than an individual and of his failure to understand that the Athenians were his enemies, that he himself and no one else could be his only judge. Alcibiades, in contrast, who, amongst other infamies, fled Athens to avoid trial when he was suspected of complicity in the mutilation of the Hirme, is praised as an intriguer of genius, an egoist who undermined the state precisely by breaking with the ancient prejudice that individuals were free only if, and to the extent that, they were members of a free community. In contrast to Stirner's rejection of civil disobedience is his notorious endorsement of crime. Stirner denies that crime is peculiarly concerned with direct relations between individuals. Rather, it mediates the relation between an individual and the sacred, in the form of legality. The criminal is punished not by individuals for actions which have harmed them, but by the state for actions which have undermined some fixed idea. Without the legal recognition of the sanctity of marriage, for example, infidelity is not a crime, whatever its effects on individuals. Crime will accordingly disappear with the epoch of egoism, when actions are judged by their effect on individual interests, not their effect on the sacred. Meanwhile, Stirner defends the individual act of crime as an assertion of individual autonomy against its chief usurper, weakening the cement, respect for law, which holds the state together. In more generalized form, and drawing a distinction between revolution, which seeks to erect a new social order, and insurrection, which represents the opposition of individuals to any order, Stirner even suggests that crime has a unique insurrectionary potential which might eventually destroy the state. 7. Individuals have also been held to have obligations generated by their membership of communities that they neither create nor choose to belong to, communities bound by natural ligatures, such as blood, locality, language, class, and common disposition. Stirner's predictable response to the resulting conflict between such obligations and ownness is to reject the value of community in all its forms. The sentimental blandishments of German nationhood, for example, are ridiculed as general, abstract, an empty, lifeless concept. Patriotism, he insists, is incompatible with egoism. Similarly, because of the potential conflict between family obligations and personal interests, Stirner insists that individuals should act autonomously and follow their own good, rather than succumbing out of weakness to either the will of another family member or the sacred in the form of family honor. The forming of family ties, claims Stirner, binds a man. In outlining the egoist's attempt to emancipate herself from all obligations to natural communities, Stirner makes no attempt to distinguish between feeling at home and being subjugated. Belonging can, of course, connote being a part of as well as being the rightful possession of. Bonds can similarly suggest solidarity as well as that which shackles. Ties can provide security as well as bind. Stirner, however, never seriously considers the possibility that these communities might fulfill, still less that they can empower, 
individuals. It seems that belonging to a natural community is equivalent to being owned by another, and the individual, writes Stirner, is the irreconcilable enemy of every tie, every fetter. Even society falls victim to Stirner's claim that as long as there exists even one institution which the individual may not dissolve, individual autonomy cannot be realized. Stirner makes much in this context of a linguistic play and doubtful etymological link between society, Gesellschaft, and an early word for a hall, cell, a building which contains and restricts its inhabitants. Stirner claims that society, and not isolation, was humankind's state of nature, an original condition whose inadequacies are in due course outgrown. The historical relation between individual and society, he continues, is analogous to the developing relationship between a mother and child, starting before the fetus can breathe with life in the most intimate conjunction, moving as an infant from the lap and breast to the pram and leading reins, and then finally escaping to play in the streets outside. The conflict between individual and society, like the conflict between the child and mother, comes from the adult preference for a less suffocating environment, and society, like the mother, must strive to destroy the individual's autonomy and inhibit her maturity if the original relationship is to be maintained. Stirner does not claim that relations between individuals end with the escape from society. Rather, he draws a distinction between relations of belonging, which characterize society as well as the state and community, and which involve a tie binding individuals together, and the relations of uniting, which characterize the epoch of egoism and occur between individuals who themselves remain independent and self-determining. Just as, he claims, a father and son initially bond together in a relationship of subordination can, following the age of majority, establish a relationship of independent equals, in which neither sacrifices his autonomy, so in the historical maturity of egoism, individuals can establish a form of association, the union of egoists, which does not violate ownness, and so constitutes an appropriate vehicle for advancing egoistic interests. The union of egoists is characterized in many different ways. For example, as a deliberate product of individual action, unlike natural communities, which are without our making them. But above all else, the union is an association which does not involve the subordination of individuals. The union is a son and co-worker of our autonomy, a constantly shifting alliance which enables individuals to unite without loss of sovereignty without swearing allegiance to anyone else's flag. If it no longer pleases me, writes Stirner, I become its foe. The union constitutes a purely instrumental association whose good is solely the advantages that individuals derive from pursuit of their interests. There are no shared final ends, and association is not valued in itself. Initially, this picture might appear attractive. Rather than present a single model of self-realization, Stirner portrays a meta-utopia of shifting patterns of association designed to realize our varied individual ends without sacrifice. Moreover, Stirner occasionally suggests that some familiar and worthwhile relationships, for example, love, can survive the transfer into egoistic instrumentalism. However, there are grounds for skepticism about both the continuance of these customary relationships and the appearance of pluralism in the epoch of egoism. Take Stirner's distinction between two kinds of love, an egoistic love, which does not involve the sacrifice of our autonomy, and the bad case, where ownness is sacrificed. 
Egoistic love allows us to deny ourselves something for the enhancement of another's pleasure, but only because our pleasure and happiness are enhanced as a result. The object of egoistic love, in other words, remains oneself. The egoist loves only as long as love makes me happy, and cannot sacrifice her autonomy and interest to another, but must remain an egoist and enjoy him. But however familiar this experience might be, and however much someone who acted in this way might look as if she loved the other person, it conflicts with any understanding of loving as including the desire to promote another person's good, their wants and needs and self-evaluation, even when that may not be in our own interests, or when it may conflict with our other wants or our own happiness. The point is not terminological. Sterner rightly cares little whether we call egoistic love love, and hence stick to the old sound, or whether we invent a new vocabulary, but rather that a world without this experience would be an unfamiliar and impoverished one. The relationship between the egoist and all her objects is characterized by Stirner as a property relation. The egoist as owner, it seems, stands in a proprietal relation to the world. However, modern juridical notions of property, for example as a sophisticated complex of incidents attached to ownership, are of little use in elucidating Stirner's meaning. Stirner sharply distinguishes egoistic property from both private property and collective forms of ownership as traditionally understood. These civic and collective forms of property rest on notions of right and include claims to exclusivity and constraints on, or liabilities attached to, use, which Stirner rejects. Egoistic property is rather constituted by unlimited dominion and unqualified effective control. My property, he writes, is nothing but what is in my power. Even in those cases where you also claim ownership over an object, it remains mine nonetheless. Egoistic property here seems to collapse into a notion of instrumental treatment, and when Stirner talks of the egoist being owner of the world, it seems simply to indicate the absence of obligations on the egoist, a bleak and uncompromising vision that he captures in an appropriately elementary image. Quote, Where the world comes in my way, and it comes in my way everywhere, I consume it to quiet the hunger of my egoism. For me, you are nothing but. My food, even as I too am fed upon and turned to use by you. We have only one relation to each other, that of usableness, of utility, of use. We owe each other nothing. End quote. The consequences of Stirner's rejection of all obligations to others are stark. The institution of promising is an early victim. The egoist must break even his oath, writes Stirner, in order to determine himself instead of being determined. Rights are also rejected on the basis of their contestable and external foundations, whether in God, nature, or human well-being, their superfluity, where they express actual relationships based on power, the reflection of wishful thinking, where they are unrealized, and, above all, their incompatibility in generating duties with ownness. For the egoist, there are no rules for resolving conflicts between competing interests, and no constraints, other than autonomy, on the pursuit of her own enjoyment. Stirner does not shy away from the consequences of this rejection of any notion of respect for persons, and he accepts explicitly that incest, infanticide, and murder cannot be ruled out. My satisfaction, he disarmingly concludes, decides about my relation to men, and I do not renounce, from any fit of humility, even the power over life and death. As Stirner's own meiotic prediction has it, very few 
of us will draw joy from this picture. The pluralism of his portrait of egoistic association, like the plausibility of his suggestion that familiar relationships would survive within his conception of others as material for enjoyment, is more apparent than real, undermined not least by his hostility to any values which conflict with ownness. But this charge of neglecting the wheel of his readers is unlikely to have troubled Stirner. Discussing his own authorial intention, Stirner acknowledged that he saw humankind as fretted in dark superstition, but denied that he sought their enlightenment and welfare. Had that been his concern, Stirner confided that he would have had to conceal, rather than publish, the ego in its own. Quote, Do I write out of love to men? No. I write because I want to procure from my thoughts an existence in the world. And even if I foresaw that these thoughts would deprive you of your rest and your peace, even if I saw the bloodiest wars and the fall of many generations springing up from this seed of thought, I would nonetheless scatter it. Do with it what you will and can. That is your affair and does not trouble me. End quote. Principal Events in Stirner's Life 1806, October, born 25th, Johann Kaspar Schmidt, in Bayreuth to lower-middle-class Lutheran parents. 1807, April, father died. 1809, April, mother remarried and moved to Kum. December, sister born. 1812, September, sister died. 1819 to 1826, Stirner attended prestigious gymnasium at Bayreuth, living with his father's sister and her husband, his godfather, who were themselves childless. 1826, October, enrolled in the philosophy faculty at the University of Berlin, attended lectures by Schleiermacher, Merheineke, and Hegel. 1828, October, moved to the University of Erlingen, partly for financial reasons. 1829, November, moved to the University of Königsberg. This was only a nominal attachment. He attended no lectures, devoting time instead to family affairs, a euphemism for his mother's deteriorating mental condition. 1832, November, returned to Berlin to qualify as a teacher, attended lectures by Michelet. 1834, March, completed his formal studies at the University of Berlin. 1835, January. Stirner's mother was committed as insane to Dacheried Hospital in Berlin. In 1837, she moved to a private mental hospital and lived until March 1859. April. Delayed by illness, Stirner eventually took his oral exams in the subjects he intended to teach, but was awarded only the conditional facultas docendi and was rejected as a gymnasialer by the Royal Brandenburg Commission for Schools. 1835 to 1836. Spent an unpaid probationary year teaching at Spilecki's Rierschul, followed by a period of private study and irregular work. 1837. July. Stirner's stepfather died. December. Married Agnes Clara Kuningund Boots, the daughter of his landlady. 1838. August. Stirner's first wife died, giving birth to a stillborn child. 1839, October. Stirner was appointed to teach literature and history at a respectable private girls' school in Berlin. 
1841, began his association with the Free, a group of Berlin left Hegelians. 1842-1844, published a series of largely unexceptional journalistic articles and one or two longer and more prefigurative pieces, including The False Principles of Our Education, April 1842, and Art and Religion, June 1842. 1843, October, married Marie Donhart, an associate of the Free. 1844, October, Stirner left his teaching job and a period of increasing financial hardship began. The Ego in its own, although dated 1845, was published at the end of October by Otto Weigand to widespread critical comment. 1845, publication by Stirner of Stirner's critics in Weigand's Schrift in reply to criticisms of The Ego and Its Own by Feuerbach, Zeliga, and Hess. 1845-1847 Publication, again by Otto Weigand, of Stirner's eight-volume translation of the economic writings of Adam Smith and Jean-Baptiste Say. 1846, April Marie Donhart left Stirner, a man whom she would later claim that she had neither respected nor loved. 1847. Publication of a reply, possibly written by Stirner under the pseudonym G. Edward, to Kuno Fisher's criticisms of the ego and its own. 1848. Publication, anonymously, of a variety of short conventional pieces of journalism in the Journal de Österreichischen Lloyd. 1852. Published a Gest ich der Reaktion, largely consisting of excerpts from earlier conservative thinkers, such as Burke, and from contemporaries like Hegstenberg. 1853-1854 Spent two brief periods, 5th to 26th March, 1853, and 1st January to 4th February, 1854, in a debtor's prison in Berlin. 1856 May Stung by a winged insect, Stirner fell into a fever. June. After a partial remission, Stirner died. 25th June. Further reading. Intellectual background. On left Hegelianism in general, see the excellent anthology of primary texts in translation edited by Lawrence S. Stepovich, The Young Hegelians, Cambridge, 1983. Useful secondary sources include William J. Brazil, the Young Hegelians, New Haven, 1970, and John Edward Toews, Hegelianism, Cambridge, 1980. For Farbach, see George Eliot's translation of The Essence of Christianity, New York, 1957, and The Fiery Brook, Selected Writings of Ludwig Feuerbach, translated and edited by Zawar Hanfi, New York, 1972. The secondary study by Marx W. Wartowski, Farbach, Cambridge, 1977, is indispensable. Lawrence Stepovich has also written a number of useful articles on the intellectual context in which Stirner worked, including Max Stirner and Ludwig Feuerbach, Journal of the History of Ideas, 39, 1978, pages 451 to 463, and Max Stirner as Hegelian, Journal of the History of Ideas, 46, 1985, pages 597 to 614. In order to get a sense of the wider social and political context, James J. Sheehan, German History, 1770-1866, to 
Oxford, 1989, can be recommended. Stirner's Life There is no English translation of what remains the standard biography of Stirner, John Henry Mackay, Max Stirner, Sein Lieben, und Sein Work, first published in 1897. Although there are brief derivative accounts in several English-language works, including R.W.K. Patterson, The Nihilistic Egoist, Max Stirner, Oxford, 1971. Stirner's Writings Apart from the ego in its own, there are only three short pieces by Stirner available in English translation. Art and Religion is translated by Lawrence S. Stepovich in his anthology The Young Hegelians. A second article, The False Principles of Our Education, translated by Robert R. Beebe, is edited and introduced by James J. Martin, Colorado Springs, 1967. Both these works, written in 1842, predate and prefigure the ego in its own. The third piece, available in English translation, is an excerpt entitled Stirner's Critics, containing Stirner's reply to Firebox's review of the ego in its own, translated by Frederick M. Gordon in a special issue of the Philosophical Forum, 8, 1978. The standard German edition of Stirner's minor writings remains the collection put together by John Henry Mackay, Max Stirner, Kleiner Schriften und Sein Entgegnungen auf die Kritik Seins Works, Der Einzige und Sein Agentum, and first published in 1897. The Ego and Its Own John P. Clark provides an interesting critical account of some major themes in Stirner's text in his rather short but still useful Max Stirner's Egoism, London, 1976. More opaque and facetious, but nonetheless fascinating, is Marx's extensive commentary in Part 3, St. Max, of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels' The German Ideology, published as Volume 5 of their collected works, London, 1976. Stirner's Influence R.W.K. Patterson, in The Nihilistic Egoist, has useful discussions of Stirner's work in relation to anarchism, Nietzsche, and existentialism. N. Lobkowitz, Karl Marx and Max Stirner, in Frederick J. Adelman, editor, Demythologizing Marxism, The Hague, 1969, is a noteworthy account of Stirner's place in the genesis of Marxism. John Carroll, Breakout from the Crystal Palace, London, 1974, examines what he calls the anarcho-psychological critique in the writings of Stirner, Nietzsche, and Dostoevsky. For intimations of Stirner's influence on individualist anarchism in America, see James J. Martin, Men Against the State, The Expositors of Individualist Anarchism in America, 1827-1908, to DeKalb, Illinois, 1953, and Benjamin R. Tucker's wonderfully titled Instead of a Book, By a Man Too Busy to Write One, New York, 1967, first published in 1897. Note on the Translation this translation of The Ego and Its Own was made by the American anarchist intellectual Stephen Tracy Byington, years 1868 to 1958. A graduate of the University of Vermont and of the Union and Oberlin Theological Colleges, Byington worked as a teacher, congregationalist pastor, editor, and translator, apparently fluent in ten languages. His translation of Stirner's work was first published in 1907 and represents an heroic attempt to convey the readable yet idiosyncratic prose of Stirner's original German text. I have, however, made a number of amendments, such as removing infelicities and archaisms, replacing the occasional missing sentence, and restoring some of the original paragraph and section breaks. 
For the sake of clarity, for example, where the sense of a term of art or a wordplay might be obscured by the translation, the occasional German word or phrase has been included in parentheses. Stirner's own footnotes appear alphabetically at the bottom of the page, although his sparse and abbreviated notes have been expanded into complete references. I have also added endnotes, listed numerically at the end of Stirner's text, most of which give biographical details of persons mentioned in the text. In both sets of notes, if a written work is available in translation, the English title is given, although other publication details are left intact. If a work is not available in translation, its title is left in the original language. After much agonizing, and despite the lofty disapproval of much of the secondary literature, I have left the title of Stirner's book, which was in fact chosen by Benjamin R. Tucker after Byington and his advisory team were unable to reach agreement, unaltered. Except to delete the gender of the possessive article, not out of ahistorical considerations of political correctness, but because Stirner clearly identifies the egoistic subject as prior to gender. Der Einsein und Sein Agentum might have been rendered the unique individual in its property, a translation which is both more literal and avoids the potentially distracting psychoanalytical connotations of the Tucker-Byington alternative. However, the ego in its own is succinct, striking, and, to an extent, familiar to English readers. On those grounds, together with considerations of fidelity to the original translation, that title has been retained. Max Stirner the ego and its own. To my sweetheart, Marie Danhart. What is not supposed to be my concern? First and foremost, the good cause, then God's cause, the cause of mankind, of truth, of freedom, of humanity, of justice. Further, the cause of my people, my prince, my fatherland. Finally, even the cause of mind and a thousand other causes. Only my cause is never to be my concern. Shame on the egoist who thinks only of himself. Let us look and see then how they manage their concerns. They for whose cause we are to labor, devote ourselves, and grow enthusiastic. You have much profound information to give about God and have for thousands of years searched the depths of the Godhead and looked into its heart so that you can doubtless tell us how God himself attends to God's cause, which we are called to serve. And you do not conceal the Lord's doings either. Now, what is his cause? Has he, as is demanded of us, made an alien cause, the cause of truth or love, his own? Should God take up the cause of truth if he were not himself truth? He cares only for his cause, but because he is all in all, therefore all is his cause. But we, we are not all in all, and our cause is altogether little and contemptible. Therefore, we must serve a higher cause. Now it is clear God cares only for what is his, busies himself, only with himself, thinks only of himself, and has only himself before his eyes. Woe to all that is not well-pleasing to him. He serves no higher person, and satisfies only himself. His cause is a purely egoistic cause. How is it with mankind? Whose cause are we to make our own? Is its cause that of another, and does mankind serve a higher cause? No. Mankind looks only at itself. Mankind will promote the interests of mankind only. Mankind is its own cause. That it may develop, it causes nations and individuals to wear themselves out in its service, and, when they have accomplished what mankind needs, it throws them on the dung heap of history and gratitude. 
Is not mankind's cause a purely egoistic cause? I have no need to take up each thing that wants to throw its cause on us and show that it is occupied only with itself, not with us, only with its good, not with ours. Look at the rest for yourselves. Do truth, freedom, humanity, justice, desire anything else than that you grow enthusiastic and serve them? They all have an admirable time of it when they receive zealous homage. Just observe the nation that is defended by devoted patriots. The patriots fall in bloody battle or in the fight with hunger and want. What does the nation care for that? By the manure of their corpses, the nation comes to its bloom. The individuals have died for the great cause of the nation, and the nation sends some words of thanks after them and has the profit of it. I call that a lucrative kind of egoism. But only look at the sultan who cares so lovingly for his people. Is he not pure unselfishness itself? And does he not hourly sacrifice himself for his people? Oh yes, for his people. Just try it. Show yourself not as his, but as your own. For breaking away from his egoism, you will take a trip to jail. The sultan has set his cause on nothing but himself. He is to himself all in all. He is to himself the only one and tolerates nobody who would dare not to be one of his people. And will you not learn by these brilliant examples that the egoist gets on best? I, for my part, take a lesson from them and propose, instead of further unselfishly serving those great egoists, rather to be the egoist myself. God and mankind have concerned themselves for nothing, for nothing but themselves. Let me then likewise concern myself for myself, who am equally with God the nothing of all others, who am my all, who am the only one. If God, if mankind, as you affirm, have substance enough in themselves to be all in all to themselves, then I feel that I shall still less lack that, and that I shall have no complaint to make of my emptiness. I am not nothing in the sense of emptiness, but I am the creative nothing, the nothing out of which I myself as creator create everything. Away, then, with every concern that is not altogether my concern. You think at least the good cause must be my concern? What's good? What's bad? Why, I myself am my concern, and I am neither good nor bad. Neither has meaning for me. The divine is God's concern, the human, man's. My concern is neither the divine nor the human, not the true, good, just, free, etc., but solely what is mine, and it is not a general one, but is unique, as I am unique. Nothing is more to me than myself. First part. Man. Man is to man the supreme being, says Farbach. Man has just been discovered, says Bruno Bauer. Then, let us take a more careful look at the supreme being and this new discovery. Chapter 1. A Human Life from the moment when he catches sight of the light of the world, a man seeks to find out himself and get hold of himself out of its confusion in which he, with everything else, is tossed about in motley mixture. But everything that comes in contact with the child defends itself in turn against his attacks and asserts its own persistence. Accordingly, because each thing cares for itself and at the same time comes into constant collision with other things, the combat of self-assertion is unavoidable. Victory or defeat. Between the two alternatives, the fate of the combat wavers. The victor becomes the lord, the vanquished one, the subject. The former exercises supremacy and, 
rights of supremacy. The latter fulfills in awe and deference the duties of a subject. But both remain enemies and always lie in wait. They watch for each other's weaknesses, children for those of their parents and parents for those of their children, their fear, for example. Either the stick conquers the man or the man conquers the stick. In childhood, liberation takes the direction of trying to get to the bottom of things, to get at what is behind things. Therefore, we spy out the weak points of everybody, for which, it is well known, children have a sure instinct. Therefore, we like to smash things, like to rummage through hidden corners, pry after what is covered up or out of the way, and try what we can do with everything. When we once get at what is behind things, we know we are safe. When, for example, we have got at the fact that the rod is too weak against our obduracy, then we no longer fear it, have outgrown it. Behind the rod, mightier than it, stands our obduracy, our obdurate courage. By degrees, we get at what is behind everything that was mysterious and uncanny to us, the mysteriously dreaded might of the rod, the father's stern look, etc. And behind all, we find our ataraxia, our imperturbability, intrepidity, our counterforces, our odds of strength, our invincibility. Before that which formerly inspired in us fear and deference, we no longer retreat shyly, but take courage. Behind everything we find our courage, our superiority. Behind the sharp command of parents and authorities stands, after all, our courageous choice or our outwitting shrewdness. And the more we feel ourselves, the smaller appears that which before seemed invincible. And what is our trickery, shrewdness, courage, obduracy? What else but mind? Through a considerable time, we are spared a fight that is so exhausting later. The fight against reason. The fairest part of childhood passes without the necessity of coming to blows with reason. We care nothing at all about it. Do not meddle with it. Admit no reason. We are not to be persuaded to anything by conviction and are deaf to good arguments and principles. On the other hand, coaxing, punishment, and the like are hard for us to resist. This stern life-and-death combat with reason enters later and begins a new phase. In childhood, we scamper about without racking our brains much. Mind is the name of the first self-discovery, the first unidentification of the divine, that is, of the uncanny, the spooks, the powers above. Our fresh feeling of youth, this feeling of self, now defers to nothing. The world is discredited, for we are above it. We are mind. Now, for the first time, we see that hitherto we have not looked at the world intelligently at all, but only stared at it. We exercise the beginnings of our strength on natural powers. We defer to parents as a natural power. Later, we say, father and mother are to be forsaken. All natural power to be counted as riven. They are vanquished for the rational, the intellectual man. There is no family as a natural power. A renunciation of parents, brothers, etc. makes its appearance. If these are born again as intellectual, rational powers, they are no longer at all what they were before. And not only parents, but adults in general are conquered by the young man. They are no hindrance to him and are no longer regarded. For now, he says, one must obey God rather than men. From this high standpoint, everything earthly recedes into contemptible remoteness, for the standpoint is the heavenly. The attitude is now altogether reversed. The youth takes up an intellectual position, while the boy, who did not yet feel himself as mind, grew up on mindless learning. 
The former does not try to get hold of things, for instance, to get into his head the data of history, but of the thoughts that lie hidden in things, and so, therefore, of the spirit of history. On the other hand, the boy understands connections, no doubt, but not ideas, the spirit. Therefore, he strings together whatever can be learned, without proceeding a priori and theoretically, without looking for ideas. As in childhood, one had to overcome the resistance of the laws of the world. So now, in everything that he proposes, he is met by an objection of the mind, of reason, of his own conscience. That is unreasonable, unchristian, unpatriotic, and the like, cries conscience to us, and frightens us away from it. Not the might of the avenging humanities, not Poseidon's wrath, not God, far as he sees the hidden, not the Father's rod of punishment do we fear, but conscience. We run after our thoughts now and follow their commands just as before we followed parental human ones. Our course of action is determined by our thoughts, ideas, conceptions, faith, as it is in childhood by the commands of our parents. For all that, we were already thinking when we were children, only our thoughts were not fleshless, abstract, absolute, that is, nothing but thoughts, a heaven in themselves, a pure world of thoughts, logical thoughts. On the contrary, they had been only thoughts that we had about a thing. We thought of the things so or so. Thus, we may have thought, God made the world that we see there, but we did not think of, search, the depths of the Godhead itself. We may have thought, that is the truth about the matter, but we did not think of truth itself, nor unite into one sentence, God is truth. The depths of the Godhead, who is truth, we did not touch. Over such purely logical, theological questions, what is truth? Pilate does not stop, though he does not therefore hesitate to ascertain in an individual case what truth there is in the thing, whether the thing is true. Any thought bound to a thing is not yet nothing but a thought, absolute thought. To bring to light the pure thought, or to be its party, is the delight of youth, and all the shapes of light in the world of thought, like truth, freedom, humanity, man, inspire and enthuse the youthful soul. But when the spirit is recognized as the essential thing, it still makes a difference whether the spirit is poor or rich, and therefore one seeks to become rich in spirit. The spirit wants to spread out so as to found its empire, an empire that is not of this world, the world just conquered. Thus, then, it longs to become all in all to itself, for although I am spirit, I am not yet perfected spirit, and must first seek the complete spirit. But with that, I, who had just now found myself a spirit, lose myself again at once, bowing before the complete spirit as one not my own, but supernal, and feeling my emptiness. Spirit is the essential point for everything, to be sure, but then is every spirit the right spirit? The right and true spirit is the ideal of spirit, the Holy Spirit. It is not my or your spirit, but just an ideal, supernal one. It is God. God is spirit. And this supernal Father in heaven gives it to those that pray to him. The man is distinguished from the youth by the fact that he takes the world as it is, instead of everywhere fancying it amiss and wanting to improve it, model it after his ideal. In him, the view that one must deal with the world according to his interest, not according to his ideals, becomes confirmed. 
So long as one knows himself only as spirit and feels that all the value of his existence consists in being spirit, it becomes easy for the youth to give his life, the bodily life, for nothing, for the silliest point of honor. So long it is only thoughts that one has, ideas that he hopes to be able to realize someday when he has found a sphere of action. Thus, one has meanwhile only ideals, unexecuted ideas or thoughts. Not until one has fallen in love with his corporeal self and takes a pleasure in himself as a living flesh-and-blood person, but it is in mature years in the man that we find it so, not until then has one a personal or egoistic interest, an interest not only of our spirit, for instance, but of total satisfaction, satisfaction of the whole chap, a selfish interest. Just compare a man with a youth and see if he will not appear to you harder, less magnanimous, more selfish. Is he therefore worse? No, you say. He has only become more definite, or, as you also call it, more practical. But the main point is this, that he makes himself more the center than does the youth, who is infatuated about other things, for example, God, fatherland, and so on. Therefore, the man shows a second self-discovery. The youth found himself as spirit, and lost himself again in the general spirit, the complete Holy Spirit, man, mankind, in short, all ideals. The man finds himself as embodied spirit. Boys had only unintellectual interests, those interests devoid of thoughts and ideas. Youths only intellectual ones. The man has bodily, personal, egoistic interests. If the child has not an object that it can occupy itself with, it feels unwe, for it does not yet know how to occupy itself with itself. The youth, on the contrary, throws the object aside because for him, thoughts arose out of the object. He occupies himself with his thoughts, his dreams, occupies himself intellectually, or his mind is occupied. The young man includes everything not intellectual under the contemptuous name of externalities. If he therefore sticks to the most trivial externalities, such as the customs of students' clubs and other formalities, it is because and when he discovers mind in them, when they are symbols to him. As I find myself behind things, and that as mind, so I must later find myself also behind thoughts, namely as their creator and owner. In the time of spirits, thoughts grew until they overtopped my head, whose offspring they yet were. They hovered about me and convulsed me like fever fantasies, an awful power. The thoughts had become corporeal on their own account, were ghosts such as God, Emperor, Pope, Fatherland, etc. If I destroy their corporeity, then I take them back into mine and say, I alone am corporeal. And now I take the world as what it is to me, as mine, my property. I refer all to myself. If as spirit I had thrust away the world in the deepest contempt, so as owner I thrust spirits or ideas away into their vanity. They have no longer any power over me, as no earthly might has power over the spirit. The child was realistic, taken up with things of this world, until little by little he succeeded in getting at what was behind these very things. The youth was idealistic, inspired by thoughts, until he worked his way up to where he became the man, the egoistic man, who deals with things and thoughts according to his heart's pleasure, and sets his personal interest above everything. Finally, the old man? When I become one, there will still be enough time to speak of that.